Well, good morning. This morning we're going to be in the book of 1 John. And so I'd ask that you grab your Bibles. You'll, if you don't have one with you, you can find one in the pew rack in front of you. We're going to be uh, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. Now, 1 John is right near the end of your Bible. It's a, it's a short letter. So if you flip too quickly, you'll miss it one way or the other. So you can find it uh, right near the end, and that's on page I think the page is there, 1,021 of the Pew Bible. So today we're taking a break in our series in Matthew, which we've been in and will continue in. We're also going to be taking a break in a few weeks from now uh, as we uh, focus specifically on the death and resurrection of Christ in our Easter services. As I was preparing for this, uh, I was looking back and I realized that the last time I preached was January the 26th, 2014, which is 14 months ago which is five times longer than any stretch I've ever been through uh, since I first preached 10 years ago. So on top of uh, the regular nerves that I tend to feel when I stand up in front of a group of people and speak, uh, I also just feel a little bit rusty. So uh, it actually makes me feel all the better that this morning we are gathering together uh, longing to hear God's voice through the reading of God's word and praying that God's spirit would be at work in us. And so with that as the table being set, would you stand with me as we read from 1 John together? 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You may be seated as I pray. Father, we bow our hearts and our heads This morning, asking that by your Holy Spirit, your holy purposes would be worked out in our lives as we hear from your word. We pray that your will would be done in our hearts just as it is in heaven. And we pray this in the standing of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There is something that is both sharp and soothing in the words that we have read and hear in the passage before us today. Uh, Sharp for those that speak and act in self-righteous ways. Those that say, I am good enough. But there's also the soothing part of our passage. As As the gospel always does, it extends an arm to those who are broken who are contrite, who are meek, who readily admit that they are poor in spirit and that they need God. 
But before we get to those bits, it, it says something right off the beginning, something that is actually quite profound about who God is and who we are not. Look in the back half of passage of, of verse 5, right at the beginning. The back half says, it says this, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. At whatever level we are able to comprehend that statement of truth, it is only by God's spirit because we are not God. The light in this passage is speaking of truth, of goodness, of holiness. The darkness, well, that's speaking of deception, lies, self-worship, all that we know to be sin. I don't, I'm not sure about you. My guess is if you're honest, you would say like I that you would have a hard time finding a 24-hour window where your heart, your heart was not inclined to sin, if not committed it as such. And therein lies the difference between who God is and who we are. You see, in God there is perfect holiness, there is perfect light. He is the source of all truth, of all goodness. In him there is no darkness. Consider that. From eternity past to eternity future, God is perfectly holy, without sin. And in that, he is completely other than us. And while we are his creation, while we bear his image, of course, we know sin. We know sin in real ways because we commit it daily. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It was about nine months ago in late June. Uh, it looked like it was going to be a beautiful day out, and the normal routine had started at the break household. Uh, at the time, our children were aged five, three, two, and three months. And so we had that regular swirl of chaos, which, you know, hovers over every family with young children around that time of day. You're getting kids up, you're tired, you're trying to get people dressed and fed, cleaned up, and then cleaned up again, and then cleaned up again. Uh, all of those kinds of things are happening, and... And there's just that air about things. Now, on top of just having that stuff and needing to get people out the door, um, Catherine, our oldest, who was five at the time, was really, really excited. You see, on that day, it was a special day for her. It was her graduation from kindergarten. Yes, they do this now. Graduation from kindergarten. And she had her, she had her pretty dress on which meant for Barbara and I that we needed to try to keep said dress clean. Uh, and also all of the other things that go with getting the other three kids ready and fed and where were they going to be going during this special ceremony thing and all that extra stuff that gets uh, added to that morning. Now, Barbara and I have, have uh, just both been given a heart by God to, to be hospitable to others. That's just one of the ways that God has gifted us together. And so we like to open up our home and have people in and just share our stuff for, for the use of God's glory. And so uh, sometimes we just take that to the extreme. And so in the next couple of days, uh, 
after this day, we were going to be hosting a number of events and probably having more than 100 people kind of through our house and peeing in our pool and all, all that kind of fun stuff, which little kids, don't, don't be confused. Kids pee in pools all the time. And so we, we had a lot of stuff going on. And so just to make our lives easier, um, what we decided to do that morning was have an argument an argument about something really, really important. A ham and cheese sandwich. Now, I, I can tell by some of your laughs, you understand what that kind of an argument is like. Uh, it's, it, it's silly. We'll, we'll just categorize it as that. But if you haven't had an argument about a ham and cheese sandwich, certainly you know what I'm talking about. Replace the sandwich with some other things, some other issues, and you have two uh, opposing positions, two sides, uh, disagreeing about how the stuff in the middle is supposed to come together. One person says one thing in one tone that the other person takes offense at. Uh, that other person answers back in a corresponding tone, at which point you both, with steadfast determination, decide to stand on the escalator of communal angst and ride that up until one of you decides it's probably better to get off at the level of better judgment. On that day, the escalator didn't go that high that fast. It could have and most likely would have. We just didn't have time to argue. It was one of those situations where, like, we're not good, but if we had time, we would most certainly be arguing about this more. We didn't have time for that. And as I was leaving the house with Catherine, I could see Barb graciously and with wisdom getting off the escalator. You know, this doesn't need to go any further. She was getting off at the level of better judgment. Now, I could have joined her. I could have joined her. But you see, my level of being right, it hadn't come yet. There was still a greater height to which I needed to travel. And so as I left the house with Catherine, I was still riding that escalator alone. I, I stewed in that silly argument all the way to school. And as I was walking Catherine uh, to, the, to the area where the kids play before they go in, it just hit me. It just hit me in a way that it hadn't hit me before. You see, my desire to be right was coming from a place other than just actually thinking I was right. What order does the lettuce and ham and cheese go in? It was coming from a heart that had, that had become hard to grace and distant to forgiveness. My heart was good enough, though in reality it had become combative and distrusting. I was easily angered, and when it, kept, when it came to keeping a record of wrongs, my list was long, and it was the weapon that was piercing, and I kept it at the ready. Oh, I might be wrong in all of this, but you're wrong as well, and let me tell you why. The reality was that the house which was my heart had been divided, and as we know, a house that is divided cannot stand. I was not fully following Christ. I had a secret. One where my own self-sufficiency had trumped the all-surpassing sufficiency of Christ and the sinful chains of pride and shame that came with that sin 
They were keeping me from knowing and living in all areas of my life the freedom and forgiveness that had been afforded me in Christ. I had known the light. I knew the light. I could talk about the light. I could counsel other people in light of the light. But myself, I had drifted into the shadows. And as I'm sure you're aware, walking in darkness, there's a weightiness to it. Sin takes its toll. And that morning as I was walking Catherine to school, it hit me that I was walking around with this hypocritical bomb strapped to my chest. I didn't want that secret anymore, and whatever the consequence, that secret needed to be exposed to the light. It needed to be exposed, or I knew it would kill me. It would destroy me. It would destroy all that I loved. My wife, my witness, everything. Now, First John that we're in today, it's a neat letter in that it helps to determine who or what owns the heart of someone, both examining what they profess, what they say they believe, but also how they actually act. To use the language of the text, what we say and how we walk and understand this, that they both matter. The fancy word for this, and we'll add it to our vocabulary this morning, that I'm going to explain is orthodoxy and orthopraxy. That's not just to show you that I went to school, but it's to give you a fancy word to use the next time you're waiting in line at the grocery store. Orthodoxy means right belief, uh, that you understand something correctly. And so we would say that so-and-so has an orthodox understanding of the scriptures. They rightly believe what the scripture teaches, and thereby they can rightly speak about it. Orthopraxy is having a right practice, meaning someone lives rightly. And in our context, we would say that someone lives rightly in light of what they rightly believe about the scriptures. Word and deeds, right belief, right action, both are expressed in what we say and are displayed in actually how we walk. Whether that is in full view of others or whether that's in secret, those times and secluded spaces that life affords and that no one else can see. And so our passage today is a series of contrasts related to these two things, that which is of God in the light affirmed by God and that which is sinful in the darkness and of which God has no part. And sadly added on to that, is this understanding, is this word that says our sin, it actually impacts not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with others as well. Our sin doesn't impact ourselves, no matter how secret you think it is. It results in the breaking of truth, of trust, that shoulder to shoulder, that heart fellowship that we are called to have with one another in the faith. Those that you and I are called to be closest with. In fact, if you look to verses 6, 8, and 10, look there now. There is a progression of defiance that is exposed. And it heightens the implications of what we say and how we walk. Look to verse 6. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, while we sin, we lie and we do not practice the truth. 
in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Look in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar and his word is not in us. Now, none of the options that we just read are good. None of those things we would want to say are true about ourselves. In fact, they go from bad to that which is a defining characteristic of Satan in calling all holy God in whom there is no darkness a liar. And so, if you say you are a Christian and without remorse, without any sort of desire for change, walk in sin, then you are rightly labeled by this, by this passage a liar and a hypocrite. You're self-consumed because you care more about what others think to be true about you than what an all-knowing God already knows not to be true about you. And so when we say we have fellowship with God and yet carry on in unrepentant sin, we are liars and we are hypocrites. And when you boil it down, we are not consumed with the things of God and his kingdom. Instead, we're just consumed with ourselves. And if, as in verse 8, as we saw, we say we have no sin, then we are self-deceived. I'm all good. No struggle with sin here. Sadly, some of you know those that have lived self-deception right out to the max. You've watched someone you care about destroy themselves because they have been unwilling to acknowledge the sin that is in their life, their choices and their consequences. And it is a horrible sight to see. Head in the sand, Consequence has no bearing on me, they say. The one who says they have no sin simply deceives themselves. And the truth of God's word is not in them. And worst of all, if, if we look back to verse 10, it says, If we say we have not sinned, then we are self-righteous. And intentionally or not, we act as a mouthpiece of Satan in declaring God to be a liar. Now, it's a fair question to ask. If I say I have not sinned, how is it that I make God out to be a liar? The scriptures tell us that Jesus came to do the will of the Father, which was to pay the penalty for my sin and for yours, that he would bear God's wrath upon the cross. And if any man, any woman, and any child... If any of those should say that they have not sinned, that they have no need for a Savior, then the Spirit of the risen Christ does not reside in them. And they, in their own self-righteousness, not the righteousness of Christ, make God's word out to be false and declare him to be a liar. God said that we are all sinners. And when we say we aren't, we're saying is a liar. And so if you're looking for an example of what it means to be blasphemous, yeah, wear a chain of a cross around your neck and live some weird life. Even use the name of Christ as a curse word. But worse, 
Declare your righteousness before an all-righteous holy God. Do not declare the righteousness of Christ, and you will have seen blasphemy in the flesh, alive in your flesh. Self-consumed, self-deceived, self-righteous, each with their devastating consequence. So that morning in late June, as I was walking Catherine to school, coming out of an argument about a ham and cheese sandwich, of which I was still stewing, God just got a hold of me and gave me a good punch in the gut. I was a hypocrite to claim fellowship with God and the church and I couldn't allow that part of my heart to walk in darkness any longer. That morning in June was the first time that I asked the question, when does this end? When does this sin no longer have a hold on me? When does the fullness of life that God has called me to in Christ Jesus come before my sin and before my shame? Sure, I had confessed it plenty of times before, but those confessions always came with conditions. I had swore it would be the last time, just as long as no one else had to know. I could take care of it myself. So, of course, the struggle continued because it's not God's design that we should struggle with sin alone. That's not God's purpose for the church. The thing that I had been fighting for about two and a half years, I could no longer fight and I knew it. I knew that until I confessed, that secret would own me and it would eventually destroy me. During a particularly stressful season, instead of looking to God and trusting in Him, I looked at a bottle and I trusted how I looked through its distorted view. I kept my my struggle with Alcohol hidden from everybody, my wife, my family, my closest friends, those I worked with here at church. Because the darkness provided me with an illusion. It was a temporal illusion that the stress didn't, the stress didn't exist. And it was the means of escape. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. I'd like to say it was an accidental habit I formed. I'd like to say I was at a wedding and we were giving a toast when the drink grabbed hold of me in a way without my knowing, without my consent. But of course, that would not be true. That was not the case. My actions, though, riddled really with guilt and unimaginable conflict were absolutely intentional. They were entirely selfish and they were lacking exposure to God's holiness and thereby existed in darkness. Stemming from and existing entirely in darkness, my sin and abuse of alcohol drew me further away from the light that God had called me to live in. And the more I followed that, the more my my flesh came out. The people who we really are outside of Christ. The sinful me existed all the stronger. 
Any defenses that I, that I set up, of course, were faulty because, as I said, I didn't want anybody else to know. There was no accountability. And any guilt that I felt, I would just, with increasing difficulty, stuff it, ram it into that box with the rest of the guilt I had been storing up. I know that what I just said sounds absolutely crazy to some of you. You have no concept how anyone could struggle with anything to that level or to that degree. Let alone a pastor. (laughs) But I know that there's others of you here this morning to whom what I just said makes perfect sense. It's that fear of being found out. That fear of having your sin exposed. Of someone else knowing. That is the knot that you feel in your stomach right now. And I know that. You have a desire to be free. But you're scared. I want to say something specifically to you this morning. Sin wants to keep you afraid. Fear wants to keep you silent. So that the cycle of sin can continue in your life. So that your deception of others and the deception that you are piling upon yourself can continue. I know that you are here. And I know that fear. It'll sound weird, but I want to give words to what that fear was so that You who do not know that fear, if someone should ever confess to you, if someone should ever say, I'm struggling with this, that you would know what that fear sounds like. Though unreasonable and extreme, my fear sounded like this. Josh, if your sin is ever revealed, your wife will leave you. You'll lose You lose your children, your family will disown you, your friends will abandon you, you're definitely going to lose your job, that's a guarantee. You will bring shame upon the name of Christ, no one will ever respect you again, all of the good that you have worked towards in the community and the world at large will be lost. And though your shame and your fear might be different than my own, it's probably not that far off. And I know your fear. But know this, that your fears are not rooted in God's word being true. 
And that in God, there is no darkness at all. You see, Christ died for that fear and bore the cross so that your sin and your shame would not be counted against you. Christ was the only one capable of bearing it. And so the hand of God's grace, it is extended to you today. In fact, it's the hand of God's grace that's extended to all of us. In fact, look back at our passage in verse 7. Look what it says, because there is redemption here. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Our relationships with one another are restored in Christ. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. For in verse 9, look there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That filth you feel, that scum you know, it is white clean in Christ. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And in Christ, the stain of our sin is covered over with the righteousness that comes with the shed blood of Jesus. Uh, sin, your sin might not be drinking. <laughs> it probably isn't for, you know, 99% of you. Mine was, and it was just the illusion of removing stress. But whatever the stripe of your sin it is not of God, and it is not God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. Whether it is the impatience that comes about you as you try to find a parking spot, or the pornography which you have given your heart over to, God's will for your life in Christ Jesus is not the illusion of goodness or the illusion of pleasure. That sin affords. God's purpose for you is good. It is true. It is rooted in light. And it is rooted in holiness. It is not an illusion. It is real. You see your sin comes in, in many flavors, doesn't it? But it's all an illusion. Lust is the illusion of intimacy. Greed is the illusion of security. Gluttony is the illusion of being fulfilled. Lying is the illusion of truth. Cheating is the illusion of success. Vanity is the illusion of acceptance. Substance abuse is the illusion of escape. Pride is the illusion that you are not in need of God's moment-by-moment grace. And it is that pride that says, I have no sin, I have not sinned, and there dies thereby declares God to be a liar. And if that's the case, our scripture says his truth is not in you. I want to speak to us in two groups. If, if you are young enough to think that the majority of your years are still ahead of you, or just don't know any better yet, I would probably put myself into that category. I want to warn you against thinking something. 
we must not think ourselves so young that our sins now don't matter. If you are choosing to follow the path that is wide and that leads to destruction, whether wide out in the open or in the secret, do not think yourselves as safe. Do not think with self-confidence that you will be able to sort yourselves out when you get older. When you need to start being responsible, when it really matters, you can stop. Do not think that the consequence of your sin will not outlive your sinful actions, because they will. Know this, sin will always exact from you a toll that you never intended to pay. It will always draw you down the road further than you ever intended to walk, and whose consequence you may well bear for the rest of your lives, if not eternity, should you not be gripped by your sin and repent of it. Listen, sin does not want you for that fleeting moment which brings you ease, which garners some excitement, or gives you those temporal joys of excess. No, that is not the case. Like the fish that sees the lure in the water, it's an easy meal and it's pleasing to the eye. But the result of it has you in the bottom of a boat getting your guts ripped out. Its only desire is to kill you. Do not be mistaken. It will be your death. Lust wants to destroy the intimacy that God has designed as good in marriage. Greed wants you to focus on your self-reliance so that you will never know the pleasure of what it means to truly rely on God. Gluttony wants to chain shackles of shame around your waist for the world to see. Lying wants to take whatever trust you have with others and see that smashed. Cheating and substance abuse want to see themselves revealed in as public a way as possible as to disgrace you and take your witness and to smash it. Vanity wants you to look in the mirror and not see the creation that was woven together by God, but a never good enough version of the world's ever-changing definition of beauty. And pride, the only thing your pride wants is to see you in hell. And all of these things are the scheme of Satan. They are not of God. They are not holy as you in Christ are called to be holy. Instead, they are the lure of the evil one who prowls around like a hungry lion only looking to devour you. Do not be mistaken. And this warning is not limited to those who simply think that the majority of their years are ahead of them. It would be nice if that were the case. But with all gentleness and all respect, I plead with you who know better. I plead with you who know that the majority of your years are most likely behind you. I plead with you to consider the soil of your own hearts. Maybe you have been faithful for years. But maybe sin is casting a long shadow of darkness And it's in that shadow that you now walk. I plead with you to consider the sin that longs to take you captive and render these latter years of your life as fruitless. Know this, that your heart is not vulnerable to sin. 
No, you may not be as susceptible to things like lust and greed as the younger you was, though you know you still are susceptible. But the soil of your soul is plenty fertile for the roots of bitterness, of gossip, of envy, of strife, of unforgiveness, of discord, to bore for themselves a home deep into your soul. And this says nothing of the self-righteousness that can come from having a life that has been committed to God's work. Those things that you would point back to in your younger years and say, look at that, that was my act of righteousness. Such thoughts, words, and actions are ready to claim your heart today. They want to drag it into darkness. They want to bring it into self-deception and hypocrisy. In my own life, the grace and forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus is the only thing that has brought peace to my soul, that has brought restoration to my marriage as Barb extended the same forgiveness to me that she received in Christ. My friends to whom I confessed, they never made little of my sin, not one. They cried for me, they cared for me, they prayed for me. But they were merciful because in Christ, God had shown them mercy. And those whom by God's order have care over my soul, the elders of this church with whom I had worked and with whom I had broken trust by intentionally hiding a part of my heart, they sought to see that which was most important take place, the restoration of my soul, not just that I'm a pastor again. The lies of sin and the lies of Satan had been broken. Hope re-entered. Fellowship was being restored. When I stopped lying, claiming that I had fellowship, that I was in right relationship when in fact I was just walking in darkness. If there's a sin that you are struggling with, whether it's anger or jealousy or unforgiveness or pornography or whatever it is, You need to trust God will, by his grace, mend the brokenness that comes with confession and walking in the light. You need to trust that God's word to us today is true. I know the fear of coming clean. But I want to tell you this, and this is no exaggeration. When I confessed my sin, both privately to those that I I was close with, but also to you as a church, I was a pastor here, so I needed to do that. No one sharpened their knife. Most of the fears that I had, they were just rooted in sin. No one went for my throat, wanted my head. I wasn't rejected. I was drawn in. You see, when someone admits that they're broken, we don't scatter the pieces. We get the glue. My sin was terrible. And the consequences of my sin were gut-wrenching. One of the hardest things we've ever walked through in our marriage and most likely, well, I know for myself and my life, 
Our passage says, if you say you have no sin, you are deceiving yourselves and God's truth is not in you. Worse still, if you say you have not sinned, then you are making God out to be a liar and his word is not in you. But more likely, if you show up here on a Sunday morning, if you maintain these relationships with others in a way so that it appears that you are walking in the light, but you are harboring sin, God's word says that you are a liar and you are not practicing the truth. But contrast that with what Christ is calling each one of us to be and calling us together as a church to be. You've heard it said over the last number of months that this church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. That it's okay that you're not okay, but it is not okay to stay there. I want you to know that that is true and that that is true of this place. That may not be what you think of, tr- of church. You may think of church as that place where you go and you just look good and everyone else judges you. It may be your experience in another church. It may even be your experience in this church at some point in the past. But that is not who we are now. And I want to say that I'm proof of that. And that's not because we as a people or the pastors here have anything special to offer. We are in no way different in ourselves but because God's word is true and the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin because if we confess all of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the word to us this morning, God's word to us is this. Confess your sins and walk in the light where there is freedom where there is fellowship, and where there is peace. Let's pray. God, you know our hearts. We cannot hide our hearts from you. You are perfectly holy. You are perfectly good. You are perfectly just. And you are perfectly loving. And so I pray that the convicting work of your Holy Spirit would nail what we might consider to be the smallest, most insignificant sins that exist in our lives right to the cross now in Jesus' name. Might you by your Spirit convict us of our sin? Might you give us as a church and as individuals, grace with one another. Might we be the people you have called us to be, holy, set apart for your purposes, not just for our good, though we're grateful for that, but for the glory of your name. Amen.